Sheila Daz, and welcome to Flow, where we discuss the power and the problems of conversation. It's nice to have you along listening in conversation with us today. And remember, you can follow us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. That way you can be sure never to miss our next take on conversation. Today, we will confront one of our deepest fears in conversation. Am I boring? And it's twin. What to do when someone's boring us? I suppose I began wondering about boredom years ago when I started wondering about leisure and free time. That is, what to do when we have nothing to do. And this kind of open time allowing us the freedom to choose, to think, to question, is actually not boring at all. Today, we actually have our time crammed with attention-grabbing devices, and we're still bored. So what is it that makes us bored? Like you, I'm sure, I've been bored. And sometimes I've been caught in conversation with someone we might call a bore. But the more I've studied this phenomenon, the more I got pulled in to learn more. My first guest this season, Hasten Moon, awakened me to the fact that we can't always be right in reading someone's cues of boredom. Like sometimes a yawn is just a yawn. I'm really tired, not bored. That's it, that's all. My next guest, Nick Epley, echoed hasten in that the most accurate way to find out how someone feels about us in conversation is to ask them. Well, that might not always be easy to do when what you're talking about is boredom. Sandy Mann fills in the gap on this topic because she's done much of the legwork for us in her research, asking people directly what makes them bored in conversation. She leads us through just what kind of emotion boredom is and why it's so rightly dreaded, in conversation at least, both as speaker and as listener. We discuss which characteristics top the charts in making conversation boring. Some may be obvious, like not having an engaging tone. Some counterintuitive, like not allowing interruptions, or repeating topics, even urgent ones like climate change. I'll let you listen to her to find out more. What I find cool about Sandy's take here goes beyond learning how we as speakers may avoid being boring ourselves, but why we instinctively want to do so. She also helps us discover how we as listeners may still find meaning in these sometimes trying moments and ultimately open ourselves to gratitude for a variety of relationships. Sandy is the director of the Mind Training Clinic in Manchester, senior psychology lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire, and author. Her latest book is The Science of Boredom.
Sandy Mann. Welcome to Flow. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this. Um, me too. I'm actually uh, very excited to talk to you about boredom and yeah. being boring um, in conversation today. Yeah. <laughs> we, hopefully we won't be. Hopefully you and I won't be. But if we um, are, that's okay, because we can just say we're demonstrating how to be boring. Yeah, we're, we're the examples of what yeah. not to follow. But I, yeah. hope, I hope that you're not bored and I don't think I'm going to be. And yeah. it's it's a funny thing because I think it seems paradoxical to some people that you can be excited about boredom. But I know mm-hmm. that boredom studies are booming and you uh, yourself have contributed significantly to those uh, with your book. The Science of Boredom, The Upside and Downside of Downtime. So mm-hmm. what excites you about boredom? Boredom is really exciting because, <laughs> because it's one of those emotions that people always think of as very, very negative. Um, we see boredom as something to be got rid of, something to be eliminated, especially with children. We see it as a negative thing. And yet there's this upside of boredom that we don't really think about. So when I first started to research boredom, I was very intrigued by this paradox of boredom being both negative and positive. How can that be? And by the the fact that there's this hidden upside that that is incredible. It leads to this incredible creative brain. And I, I fear that in us trying to eliminate boredom, we're getting rid of so much. So for me, the excitement is reconnecting people to uh, uh, an emotion that has, like all emotions, evolved for a reason, but we're we're in danger of losing it or trying to lose it. So it's reconnecting people to that and the benefits of it. I want to talk about two things you mentioned there. One, you talked about that it is an emotion. Um, could yeah. you explain that in a little bit more detailed way? How how, I mean, we all feel bored and we, we know what it feels like, but we might not know what's going on exactly. Well, what is going on is that our brains are constantly all the time searching for stimulation, neural stimulation. And we're, we're, we're like, we've got those like antennae that are constantly searching for it. And everybody has a different level of optimal stimulation in the brain. So if your optimal level is reached, then you're happy, you're satisfied, you're content. Mm -hmm. If there's too much stimulation, then you're overwhelmed. And if there's not enough stimulation, then your brain will seek it. And if it finds it, then all well and good. If it it seeks it and doesn't find it, that's that negative feeling that we label as boredom. Mm. So you could be understimulated, but happy. So you could be sitting on a beach, relaxing in the sun. Oh, do you know... On a November day, it's nice to think about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could be doing nothing but happy. You're not searching for stimulation. It's Mm -hmm. that search for stimulation that is not satisfied. It's that dissatisfaction that we label as boredom. So you're feeling an absence and actively trying to um, address that. Yeah. If you're happy to be bored, then that's not boredom, really. And some of the ways that I think you've described that, like being an emotion, and you, you mentioned that just now, that all emotions serve some kind of purpose. Right. So what purpose have you found that boredom serves? You you, you mentioned an idea of like opening a space. Could you describe that a bit more? Well, well, boredom serves many purposes. I mean, I give whole modules on this. There's probably more than one (laughs) chapter in my book on this. Um, So there's lots of purposes, but I think think that probably the main purpose is to prevent us being overstimulated. We have to get bored of things. If you think about our evolutionary past and you imagine 
our, our ancestors sitting on the, uh, the, I don't know, the African plains and monitoring the horizon for, for danger. Uh, and they're fixated by these palm trees in the distance. How beautiful, how lovely. The palm trees never change. Day by day, they look exactly the same or they don't change very much. But we're preoccupied with the beauty of the palm trees so much so that we miss the, the, the herd of lions approaching us because we're so preoccupied by things that are there all the time. They're not dangerous. We don't need to pay attention to them. So we need to be able to, our brains need to be able to um, discount or, or, or just filter out anything that is not new, that is not novel, that is not uh, useful to us, that is not a resource. We need to be able to filter that stuff out. If, imagine if we didn't get bored. We'd, be, we'd all be like toddlers all the time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, excited by leaves and, and raindrops. I mean, it sounds quite good. It would good, be actually. very tiring, though. But we'd never get anything done. We'd just be like toddlers, take ages to leave the house or to get down the road, you know, because they're excited by everything, which is wonderful to see, mm-hmm. but doesn't work in the adult world because we'd never get anything done. So we need to be able to get bored of stuff so that we can concentrate on those things that we need to pay attention to. Otherwise, we'd just be overwhelmed, especially in today's world of, so much stimulation, so much happening. We need to be able to filter stuff out. And that, that brings another problem, which we'll probably come to later. So you, you talk about it sort of like allowing us then to focus on what is is important or important right now, at least. It, it gives yeah. us that, that, exactly. that space. And I, I know in your book, you've also uh, specified that it's not simply about not having something to do, but not mm-hmm. having something appealing to do and could you differentiate that a little bit more for us well I always ask my students or lecture I mean I lecture all over the world on board and I always say to people um I won't be able to do this now after this podcast but I always say you know what is it what is boredom people there's always somebody that says it's it's not having anything to do um and I always say it's very difficult to think of a situation when you literally have nothing to do especially Mm -hmm. nowadays when we have the world at our fingertips in our phones so we should not know what boredom is anymore Mm-hmm. Boredom should be a, an, an evolutionary relic of the past. It should be something that we tell our children about. Oh, we used to get bored in the old days, and they'll get what was boredom? You know, they shouldn't know what it is. In and fact, yet, we're overstimulated today. Well, well, we seem to be more bored than ever before. So, um, boredom is something that it, that is just it shouldn't be there. But it, what was your question? Sorry, I've lost the. Tr- well, lost the, the idea that it's, 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 about, not, it's not about an absence as much as um, that it's an absence of something appealing to us. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we shouldn't know. We shouldn't know what boredom is. I said I got carried away with the excitement of boredom. Then. We shouldn't know what boredom is, um, but we do, and and that's because we have, even though we have so much around, so much stuff to do, the world at our fingertips, it doesn't appeal to us at that time, and that's the key thing. It's very hard to imagine a situation where you literally have nothing to do. Although I have done experiments on people where I've got them in a soundproof room with nothing, no stimulation at all. Mm -hmm. But generally, we're bored despite a multitude of things to do, but they don't appeal to us at that time. And that's the key thing. I really like how you specified that at the very end, um, that it doesn't appeal to us at that time. Because I also (laughs) read in your book that you mentioned that boredom is, quote, partly independent from the task in that there's not a constant relationship say between me and an activity but that what I find boring today I might possibly find riveting tomorrow Hmm. so how does that happen well uh, uh, there's there's, boredom is this strange interaction isn't it between lots of different things 
um, including the environment and how long you've been doing a task and the meaning that we attach to that task and what you've been doing before and what you've been doing after. You know, there's so many different things that will impact whether you find something boring. So a really good example is uh, that the world we live in today is very fast paced, very fast moving. And um, apps like Facebook or social media that used to be so new and exciting, people now say they're bored of. So we get bored of things very easily. We're, we're addicted to, to mm. novelty. So mm. that's one factor. Something that's new is not boring. Once it's no longer new, it can become boring because we're designed to filter that out. As I said, mm. we're designed not to be, to, we're designed to be bored by something when it's no longer new. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one factor already. But other factors could be um, the meaning that we attach to something. So we tend to get bored of things that don't have much meaning to us. But if we have, if, if we feel more meaning in it, then we're, we're less likely to be bored. So something that might be really important and meaningful to us one day might not be the next. Um, I don't know, you might be um, studying for a job interview and reading up on a company, fascinating yeah. stuff. Um, after you've done the job interview, the next day you'd be bored of it and say, I don't want to know anything more about this company, yeah. especially if you didn't get the job. Uh, but so it, a lot of it depends on so many different factors. That example resonates very clearly yeah. with me. <laughs> um, so. When we talk about boredom, part of it is um, we need, we feel like we ought to pay attention to something and it's, it's a struggle somehow. Um, either, like you're saying, it's, it doesn't seem meaningful or it's, it's not new and it's not exciting. And I love that you cited in your, your, your book, Mihai uh, Shitsa Mihai, who labels flow, which is incidentally the name, of course, of yes. his podcast. Um, and he talks about flow is the sort of opposite of boredom as, as it's not struggling to keep our attention to something, but more, um, being in the zone or being like so happy and immersed in what we're doing. And, and I was thinking about that because my last two interviews, uh, my last one with Nick Epley, he talked about conversation as actually, um, even with strangers as actually bringing us more happiness in our life. And before that, I was talking to Hasten Moon, who's um, an executive coach, and she was talking about how conversation and particularly listening with others can help bring us and our conversation partners to a happier life. So the idea that conversation and a flow in conversation can help us get to that happiness has really been coming out in my recent... Yeah, um, as long as the, the person you're speaking to isn't boring you. <laughs> well, that's it. And so I, I do want to sort of dive into some of those yeah. conversational aspects that, in fact, can lead us um, away from happiness and to boredom. Yeah. So just just going back to the, the idea of flow, I don't know whether you've talked about this more, but um, I always liken it to um, you doing something. You know, when you get that that message alert on your phone or something and if you're not in flow, you want to open it straight away, see who it is, what it is. If you're in flow, you, I can't wait, wait, I'm just doing something. Let me just finish there. You know, you're in, you know, you cut, I'll come back to it. And very often you've forgotten that it was there and you, you've forgotten that there was a tech because you're so much in yeah. flow. So that's the kind of flow that we're in. So yeah, you could be talking to people and you're in flow and you, you, you don't even want to check your phone. It's that kind of thing. Our phone is such a big pull. Yeah. So yeah, what happens if they're boring? It's completely different. So bore, other people can only help us and bore us if they don't us if they're not boring and it's weird because a little bit i think about when we decide to engage in conversation with people um we usually 
open up to that conversation, I think, because we anticipate it may be being enjoyable or maybe that we're going to learn something. And yet we've all been bored in conversation. And it's also quite alarming, I think, to everybody, the idea that we ourselves could be boring other people in conversation. Terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying. We'd, we'd rather be, be almost anything except boring. Actually, the only other thing that we might rate the same is not having a sense of humour. Those are the two things. Uh, and they probably go hand in hand because I've done a lot of work on, on humour and laughter as well. And I think people um, would rather admit, I mean, there's a famous quote, people would rather admit to anything, including murder, than, than not having a sense of humour. So I think they go hand in hand. Humour can be the opposite of boredom. So, yeah, we, we're all terrified of being boring. And, and what does what does that sort of say to us? Like, why is that so high up on our list of, of, of fears of like how we don't want to be perceived? Well, social interaction and affiliation is a basic human need. It's part of our evolutionary um, design. We, we need to affiliate because we need to have kinships, uh, social groupings. So it, it's inbuilt in us that we want to um, keep people close to us, keep people liking us so that they have those we have those connections where they might help us they might we help each other and if we can't keep them close to us by entertaining them and stimulating them then they might not be there when we need them so I think it comes down to evolution really so it's interesting because you're you're now like I think opening up to some of the problems that not boredom specifically but being boring in a conversation that in a relation with someone can can cause is and one that you've already indicated is that we might lose. Uh, we might lose some of our, our contacts, our friends and our support, our support system. Yeah, I think people are really terrified of that. And I think more so now than ever before because of social media where everything is put on display and we see everybody else's wonderful, perfect photoshopped lives mm -hmm. with all those friends, hundreds of friends. And we, we feel we have to gather and collect friends and the likes and things. So I think we are under a lot of pressure to uh, keep those, not just inner circles, but outer circles and even outer and outer circles. And to do that, we have to constantly be providing new content and exciting content. And that, if, yeah. yeah, and if you, if you think that makes me sound like I'm talk, talking about influencers, but that's what we all are, aren't we? We're all influencers in our own little worlds and we want to influence our friends, our close friends, and, and we want to... Mm -hmm be a positive influence so that we get invited to stuff and that they're there for us and our, uh, like you say, our support systems. So it is a, a terrifying pressure, really, that a lot of us feel. And it, yeah, a pressure is, yeah, as you said, like amplified by social media and, and putting on us this almost demand to constantly show that we are worthy uh, and, and, um, and so therefore, I guess, not boring. <laughs> interesting I think we're, to show that we're interesting and that yeah and therefore yeah worthy of taking up that space at the dinner table or worthy of attention maybe worthy of attention and worthy of um you know taking up space in somebody's life mm -hmm. we're all busy yeah when we have to make choices and we, we you know everything's a choice we don't have limited capacity limitless capacity to entertain friends we're going to pick those that are entertaining and that are interesting absolutely you do in your book focus a whole chapter on um, different features of a boring conversation or boring conversationalist. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the things that I found interesting about <coughs> conversation, um, different perhaps from other activities, is that it seems that if we're bored in a conversation, there's another element that we just can't walk away from it. Mm. We're trapped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that feeling of being trapped is obviously related to boredom because boredom is about the search for stimulation. And if you're trapped, you can't search for stimulation. So, and if you, and if you're not allowed to daydream either, you're kind of trapped because if you can daydream, your brain can go off and search for its own stimulation. But if you're trapped and you've got to kind of engage, you can't daydream, you, can't, you haven't got the stimulation in front of you, you haven't got it within you. You know, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. It's a frustrating feeling. It's a stressful thing. And I think, you know, everyone has felt sometimes even a social obligation. Like I know um, sometimes this has happened to me um, when I was with my very aged grandmother who, who just died at 104. Wow. Um, well, yeah. I'm sorry for the loss, but what a, what a great age. Yeah. And but I will admit, although I loved her, um, sometimes her her conversation, you know, at that age um, got you know quite repetitive and mm. dwelled often in the past. And and I felt, yes, I was I certainly couldn't leave the room. I wanted to give her my my love and attention. And yet it was uh, difficult for me to constantly muster a sort of enthusiasm um, yeah. About topics I'd heard um, several times. Well, it it ticks some of those boxes, doesn't it? The repetition, um, the harking back to the past, and the fact that you know you've obviously heard all of these before. So yeah, um, unfortunately, that can happen. So how did you cope? <laughs> um, I really thought about her, and I thought about how happy my attention and my presence made her, and. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, so what you're doing there, sorry to interrupt, but what you're doing there is putting meaning into it. So we talked about meaning before mm. and how uh, investing meaning and finding meaning can make something less boring. And I'm sure now you're glad that you did. And you probably are delighted that you had all those tales told so many times because they're ingrained in your head and you can now tell them to other people. And <laughs> Sadly, I have forgotten a few details, but it's true. It's true that it, it gives me pleasure to, to remember um, yeah. those moments together but that was one thing that this idea of being trapped and that our social world and our social norms that when we open up a conversation um we can't just simply walk away so somehow we're going to have to deal with boredom um, in a conversation probably more often than we'd like and you do go through a list of uh different kinds of categories and I think to a lot of people they're going to be very very familiar yeah and top of the list is egocentrism yeah and although that might, <laughs> say it again please talking about yourself yes um that's probably obvious but could you maybe point out in fact how in conversation that really lands on your interlocutor and can can just sort of turn them turn them off well it's it's a difficult one, really, because um, we do have to contribute. There's a fine line, there's a fine balance. Um, and in fact, that wasn't the category that my student, I, I gave my students a, a whole list of things, and it wasn't their top one that was the most boring. So it's, it's one of these double-edged ones where it can be interesting, because when we're talking in a conversation, we do have to give a bit of ourselves. And there's a lot of turn-taking, there's a lot of you, I give you a story about myself and you are expected to give one in return. So it's it's getting that fine line between talking about yourself but allowing the other person to speak. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why it's it's not top of the list in that people can talk about themselves without being boring, especially if you can do it in an entertaining way. I think it's the balance is shifted when you are when too much of the conversation is about you and you're not giving other other people the turn yeah. or whatever they're saying, you're trying to um, over um, get one over, you know, oh, you think you had it bad. You think you've right. had a bad day. I've had an even worse day or you're, you've lost your grandma. Let me tell you about my grandma, you know, and, and yeah, always and turning the conversation back. back then, you know, you think you think 104 is, or let me tell you about my grandma. And you think you had stories, my, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. So I think if there's turn taking, I think that's good. And actually not talking about yourself can also be an issue being very yeah. impersonal and not giving and people like to people like to, there to be um um a reciproc- reciprocity if i can say that word mm-hmm. in communication you give me something i give you something and if you're not playing the role then that can be a problem so like i said that wasn't the top one in my own research the top one for me was telling for my students telling long rambling stories that never seem to get to the point i really appreciate that one also because i think storytelling is such an art. And I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about the opposite, like what in your opinion really makes a good story? Well, let's talk about what makes a bad story because I'm better (laughs) at that (laughs) in terms of boring, uh, boredom. You know, boring people can transform the most engaging anecdote um, into a rambling tale by making sure, you know, telling a story that doesn't go anywhere um, maybe it stops abruptly. Maybe they haven't really, um, you, you know, you're kind of waiting for a punchline that never comes or in, including loads of irrelevant detail. So they'll they'll start to tell you the story and then they'll 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 go onto these Russian doll type digressions where you're opening another uh, doll and there's another story inside. And then you open that story. And there's another story inside. And you've gone all the way around, you know, they're telling you about their neighbor and then they end up telling you about the neighbor's auntie's uncle's dog, who, which just reminds you of a dog you had when you were a child and actually reminds you of your grandma. And you've gone all the way around the houses to rambling all these different connections that you've forgotten the whole point of the story in the first place. So that's, that can be a problem. Um, so lots of inconsequential detail um, and also things like including relevance to things that people don't know about. So, yes. um, so Sheila, you know, you know all about, you, you know, my friend Sue, well, she did. And you're like, well, no, actually, I don't know Sue. Mm-hmm. Or even not even asking if you know Sue, just saying. So I was speaking to Sue the other day and you're left thinking, <laughs> who's Sue? And whilst you're trying to figure out who Sue is, I've gone on and on talking about Steve. And you don't, you've, not, you've not even worked out who Sue is or using acronyms or talking about things in the workplace that are in my workplace that you don't know about. So things like that can make turn, turn an interesting anecdote into something boring. So what I find interesting about that is, I guess, on the one hand, that it's not just the content per se. Like you say, you can have this interesting anecdote, the idea that the topic, the story might be inherently interesting, but that the way it's delivered can actually make your listener lose interest. Um, And particularly that you seem that you might be seeming not to really speak to them directly, you know, uh, by speaking about things either they don't know or by going into like minutiae that you might be able to figure they're probably not interested in. Yeah, it's almost like a performance, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I think this this interest thing is really in, is really interesting because <laughs> um boredom is 
about um, or we feel boredom when we have to struggle to pay attention. You know, that that's an, a symptom of boredom, struggling to attend to something, which is why we get more bored when we're tired, because we, it's harder to concentrate. Mm. So if we're having to work hard to pay attention to something, we, we kind of label that as bore, boredom. It's too hard. So we lose interest and it's boring. So if you're telling a long rambling tale with people we don't know and things like that, we're, we're, we're working too hard to try to figure out what you're talking about. Yeah, to keep all the pieces in place in, in your mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we've, we've got so many other competing things in our brains. What we're going to do next, what we're going to eat for lunch, who we're going to meet, whatever. And um, this problem that we've got. So you, you're competing with all of that noise in somebody's head. You've got to make it easy for them. It's like if you're giving a lecture or giving a presentation. Uh, my students are, often have to give presentations. And I always say, and it's, it's classic um, advice, isn't it? That tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you're telling them and tell them what you told them. Make it as easy as possible because people have limited attention and masses of information. So make it as easy as possible. Talking about lectures, you you make me think a little bit of uh, Cicero, who um, I, I've liked for many reasons. And one is because when he talks about an orator being a good orator, he never said there's one way to be a good orator and that you have to be a, have a certain eloquence. But what you really have to do is speak for that particular audience, speak in a language yeah. and a topic that your particular audience will be able to understand and relate to. And I think part of that is about animation. And that's another thing. That was another one in the top list mm -hmm. of people, of things people find boring. Um, not having enough animation, not varying your tone, not being not being enthusiastic and interested. And again, with a, a, as a lecturer, mm -hmm. and this is the one piece of advice I always give to students, is listeners can forgive almost anything if you're enthusiastic yeah. and uh, animated. So you could deliver a lecture and you've forgotten your way and your phone goes off and, and the fire alarm goes off in the middle and you've lost all your notes and your slides aren't working. All of that can happen. But if you're excited and enthusiastic and energetic, it doesn't matter. Whereas students feel they have to prepare a perfect, uh, a perfect talk and it's got to be absolutely perfect. No ums and ahs and everything like that. And they mustn't make a mistake. Yeah. But you're, And then so they end up reading it in monotone and everybody's lost their attention. In conversation, we find people boring who don't do that, who don't engage and talk in an animated and, and interesting, interested way. And I think that is something that we all can um, relate to very easily, like a lack of excited tone or, like you said, a monotone instead of modulating your voice or maybe a lack of gesture even or. Right. Yeah, and obviously on phones and things, that's harder. But mm. I think. We, we've got to think about Zoom and, and we have to kind of sometimes exaggerate that with the technology that we've got now. But if I was going to talk to you about boredom and I said, I'm here to talk about boredom, boredom is really interesting and I love it. And I think conversation is really boring. You know, how long before you're going to cut me off and say, well, thank you, Sandy. That's been fascinating. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. You know, we've got to be we've got to be interested and enthusiastic and excited. And, uh, and like I said, I think in conversation, not overly, because that mm -hmm. can be a little bit overstimulating <laughs> a little bit creepy if somebody is you know bouncing along talking about um you know mundane things although going off at a slight tangent which is probably what I shouldn't be doing because it's potentially boring but um I think people who find excitement and interest in mundane things 
fascinate me and I think they're really interesting people we, we label them as boring people and it, there's a whole lot in the book about that if you've mm-hmm. read the stuff about it's all men's club and things like that and I, th- I think that there's something engaging about not being bored of life mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think if we think about teenagers who just seem so bored of life and they're, they're not animated and they're grump and well I, I, I don't know what it's like in Canada but it's certainly like that <laughs> certainly in my household <laughs> Um, you know sometimes you know you, you, how was your day always all right you know there's there's that kind of lack of enthusiasm and and yeah go ahead I, I wonder though if that isn't partly a desire to appear cool like yeah yeah but that's my point it's it's it why is it cool not to be mm. excited by things you know where have we got that from and I think I think we do that as adults as well and I think that that there's that there's always that balance. It's like everything. There's always that balance. We don't want to be over excited by yeah. mundane things, um, you know, stopping people in the street to look at the leaves falling. Although, actually, I did. I remember being in a beautiful place in England called the Lake District, beautiful part of the world. And everyone was walking up this hill. And I just happened to look, it was about eight o'clock at night. I happened to look back and, oh my gosh, it was the most amazing sunset. Yeah. It was just incredible. I started to take photos of it. Um, and everybody stopped to see what, you know, what's that weirdo taking photos, stopping in the street, taking photos. And they all kind of turned around and, oh, my gosh, wow. And that's something that we didn't, if we hadn't had our eyes open, hadn't looked, we'd have missed. There's beauty out there. There's beauty in the mundane. There's, there's, we're missing stuff by looking for some, looking at our phones, looking for excitement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel that too. I mean, there's, there's, I guess, mundane in just being the regular and the ordinary, but there's also with a certain attention. And you were talking about some of these people with so-called boring, like hobbies or interests. When you give your attention to something and you're curious about something and you're going deep into something, almost any subject becomes more interesting. Exactly. And that that's one of the keys to um, making life more interesting and overcoming boredom. You know, Mm -hmm. we can make a lot of things interesting, uh, I'll give you an example of um, mailboxes, postboxes, we call them. I think you call them mailboxes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Now, we've we've got um, red pillar boxes, whatever we call them here. Um, and there's there's people who are obsessed with postboxes and they're always and they go around photographing them and things. And there's always been that kind of thing that, well, that's a bit geeky or, or nerdy, if you know that word, uh, to, to go around what we you know. It's a it's a postbox now since queen elizabeth died there's been a resurgence of interest in our red pillar box in the uk because okay. all the pillar boxes all the post boxes have the insignia of the of the monarch mm. so suddenly people are, are saying oh it's going to change and it's not changed for um you know 70 years and it's going to change now how exciting and then they're starting to notice that there's some older ones with previous monarchs and, and suddenly there's an interest in in mailboxes mm-hmm. and it's like these people who've always been interested in it are saying see i told you told you it was interesting but nobody stopped to look nobody stopped to stare nobody noticed but that novelty aspect i hear it trickling into this topic the novelty of a change exactly but it brought attention to something mm-hmm. that actually is interesting our, our post boxes are all different colors not different colors different the different designs and there's some interest there like people are interested in train spotting and buses things that a lot of people might find boring drain covers um, yes (laughs) telegraph poles you know all sorts of kind of you're succeeding in convincing me actually well i collect 
antique glass bottles that used to hold sodas or medicines and things. Okay. And, uh, I think they're I think they're they're beautiful, but not everybody shares that interest. <laughs> but if only if only they could see the beauty in just something that's old and you know. So, but I do want to go back to conversation. I'm just they're... going to bring it back because oh, cool. I feel yeah, yeah we've probably rambled and therefore got a bit boring. So I'm going to bring it back. And that if I I do collect glass bottles, but I don't talk about them much. Right. Not I, I realize not everybody's interested in them. So if I constantly spoke to people about glass bottles insisted on showing visitors to my house all my bottles and yeah r- rambled on and on then I would be classed as boring because it's it's and that's another category isn't it that uh, right. an excessive interest in one topic I wanted to also talk about that because there were a couple of things that struck me in the list in the list that you're talking about of your students that uh, your students yeah. have put together and sort of ranked um from the most boring to still boring but maybe uh, less boring um mm features a conversation and one of them that you just mentioned is like being obsessed with one topic yeah. and one topic that I happen to come across a lot the last few years that people seem to be obsessed with is politics and here in North America we've had um let's say an urgency and maybe um a deep deep concern about the polarization of the fields and some of the mistruths um, that were spoken that seem very dangerous. And so some people can be very concerned, deeply concerned, you could say rightly so, about this topic. It affects our lives, but it seems that it's all they can talk about. So even though it's meaningful, it seems almost like counterintuitive, it actually can become boring. Well, we, we've certainly had lots of politics in um, the good old UK recently. Also, yes, absolutely. My goodness, yeah, lots, it's a never-ending. Never ending. Well, hopefully a bit of stability now. But um, I think one thing about to say about politics is that it's there's a lot of novelty, there's a lot of things changing, constantly changing. Certainly for us, we're changing. It seems to be changing prime minister every That's 40 so days. true. So there's, there's, there's a novelty of that. Um, but I think there's an interesting thing with politics, and this is another interesting area with, with boredom, is that if we remember that boredom is about having to work hard to attend to something, to, to pay attention, to follow something. So if you don't understand something, then it can be a struggle to work things out and it can be a struggle. So sometimes we'll label that that need to attend, that, that attention you need to put into it as, oh, it bores me. Sometimes it's even a defence mechanism that it's not that I don't understand politics, it's just that it bores me. Mm. So. I think some people are very, very excited by politics and talk about it and, and really, like you say, politics is life. But I think the the minutiae of it that some people might not understand, because, you know, if you're talking about policies and there's pros and cons of policies, I mean, we're talking about taxes and interest rates and trickle down effects and levelling up and all of these things that that not everybody has the ability or time to attend to. Yes. So rather than say, um, oh, I'm not interested, which is a difficult thing to say because it's affecting us, it was easier probably to say it's boring and I'm not, in, you know, it, it bores mm-hmm. me. But I guess there's also, while you're right for sure, especially in UK, of the novelty aspect, there also is a bit of a repetitive aspect. Like, you know, um, 
You have, uh, again, uh, I don't know, problems of the budget of the same kind that we visited a couple of years ago. And you're just like, you know, here we go again. And yes, the same yeah. players are saying the same. I mean, not in the UK, different players, but say saying similar things. And the well, lament think- can be something that you've heard so yeah. many times. A good example of that, I think, for all of us is climate change. Mm. I think I think we're getting fatigued of talking about that because mm-hmm. it seems to be the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, but other things, if it's the same thing, I mean, here in the UK, I mean, also in the, in America, I think, I, I, I mean, thinking about things that people get very excited about, other, other new things like the abortion right. laws, and um, in the UK, we've got um, a, a lot of new stuff new responses we've got a whole strike um everybody seems to be going on strike and that's although we've always had it we've never had it quite like we're having now and the energy crisis and stuff like that but i think that the 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 old stuff yeah we get bored of so covid we've got covid fatigue mm-hmm. yeah nobody really cares covid rates are going up hospital rates are going up in this country nobody really cares because we're bored of that now and as i say climate change maybe there's been a surge of interest because of the the hot summer that we've all had, I think and certainly in Europe, um, a very very exceptionally hot summer. So I think there's more interest in that because it's something new that's happened. Right. But I think you're absolutely right. When it's the same old, same old. Yeah, we've been discussing climate change. We've been discussing COVID pandemics. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on. I think there's definitely that feeling that's, of positiveness. That's interesting to me, just because like these issues are, of course, um, so important, and yet. And we need to attend to them. And yet, just because we've heard about them so often, um, somehow we might not want to anymore, um, which seems to be a big problem. It is a problem, but that's the novelty effect. That's what we're designed to do. You know, when something new comes along, when COVID came along in the first instance, obviously it was very, it was all everybody could think about and talk about. Uh, That's why it will be very difficult, I think, to have another, any kind of lockdown now because people Mm -hmm. are bored of it and moved on. Uh, and unfortunately, the same with climate change. I think it would take something <coughs> big, and maybe it has. You know, we had, a, as I say, this exceptionally hot summer. So maybe it's something big like that that will focus the attention again. But that's what we're designed for. And I yeah. think those people who who manage to sustain interest in things that other people have maybe tired of are those people who other people may class as boring sometimes, but mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You. Bring me to another idea of something that um, sometimes we've been told, I think, it seems counterintuitive to me, we've been told uh, not to interrupt people. A third of your respondents listed not allowing the other person to input as among their top five boring complaints. And if you don't mind, there was one uh, participant who you cited and I'd like to quote him who said, quote, boring people go on and on and Mm. don't seem to care that your eyes are glazing over. Mm. If you try to interject, they just talk over you and eventually you just give up and shrivel away. What I found interesting about that is is it, it seems to go against what we're taught, like I said, that listening politely is the right thing to do. Um. So why does that not uh, feel right when we're actually someone's conversation partner? Well, a good conversationalist will look for cues from the other person as to when they want 
to speak. And we've been doing that. It's a it is harder on Zoom and there is more interruption because of the slight delay and things like that. I always say to clients when I'm doing it by Zoom, apologies if I interrupt, but sometimes there's, you know, that clash when there's a bit of a delay. Um, so, but you, when you speak, you're looking at me, you're looking to see what my reactions are. When I'm speaking, I'm looking at you and I can see you thinking, and I can tell when you've got something to say. So if I'm ignoring all those cues and just waffling on and on and on, which hopefully I haven't been because it is a bit harder on Zoom, uh, then that can be considered boring because as that person said, you do kind of shrivel up a little bit inside and just, you could just be sitting there looking at your watch and it doesn't look like the other person would even notice. It looks like you could even disappear and go for a cup of tea and then come back and they probably wouldn't notice because they're just going on and on. So you've got to feel like a partner in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to feel that, in fact, yeah, both partners have a role to play. And not, yeah, an, an, an equal role. An equal role. Which is, which, which, in, a, in a normal conversation, and it's interesting because I'm a clinician, I have patients, clients, and it's not equal. No. It's, it's their space. They don't want to hear me go on and certainly not talk about my own situation. Uh, and in fact, if clients someone very politely, uh, you know, ask or ask things and they may know little snippets about my life or whatever, um, or talk about my art behind me or something, they don't, they, you've got to keep your bit brief. So it depends and because it's their space. So it depends on the situation. But assuming it's a normal, equal, friendly conversation mm-hmm. and that you're not there supporting them or anything like that, then, yeah, it needs to have that equality. It's your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn. I disclose something, you give me the, the the response, the support, and then it's your turn. You know, it's that kind of thing. And if we're not doing that, then that we lose interest. And that actually brings me to another idea, the idea of sort of like changing, not just turns, but topics, which was also came up on the list that when someone changes the topic abruptly, that also yeah. feels boring. And it's interesting because I think some people think, again, it's polite if I just listen to you and let you speak and you finished, well, then I can change the topic. And yet that actually feels like a kind of whiplash sometimes. It, again, it's a balance, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's sometimes the, you've got the opposite problem of people not you know, keep harking back to the same topic, even though other people are trying to change the topic. That's right. Yeah. So it's always that balance and, and that kind of social skill, this this emotional intelligence, this social intelligence of knowing, has this person finished? Can I introduce my topic? And sometimes we ask, don't we? Sometimes we say, um, can I change the subject? Because you reminded me of something else. And if the person knows you well enough, they could, ju- they could say, oh, actually, I just want to finish saying this, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you think about a family situation where everybody interrupts and people change the subject, and people just jump in and there's no, there's less politeness, isn't there? People just do what they want. And that can be very frustrating because you, you're switching from topic to topic and nobody feels sort of satisfied. So it's a balance. It's it's social skill. And it's something that it's incredible how we learn it or most people learn it. And actually, I do feel that a lot of these characteristics, people on the autistic spectrum don't always get. And they are hard to learn. And sometimes you do have to teach people, which, which, and we need to make allowances as well. If somebody does switch topic abruptly, I think we also need to show compassion and, and be compassionate. And I think we're sometimes too judgy, aren't we? And, and dismissive and, oh, well, we've got lots of other friends. We'll just dismiss them because they want borders when 
I think we need, especially young people, I think we need to be more compassionate. Again, we go back to the idea of connection there, that we can have people in our lives that can offer us really meaningful connections and we can be more generous, I think, with them sometimes. And maybe not so insistent that we be entertained all the time or perhaps entertained is the wrong word, but maybe even feel um, as listened to as maybe we would want uh, Mm. and be ready to sacrifice a little bit of that in order to get a deeper connection with meaningful people in our lives. Exactly. I think I think also different people will serve different purposes in our lives. You know, you've got the friend that's good for a laugh and entertaining, and then you've got the friend that you'll go to with a problem, and you've got the friend that that seems to come to you for problems and doesn't listen, but you then take a caring role, and that's good as well. So, not every friend or every person in your life is going to fulfil every need, and I think that we need to just perhaps think about those connections and 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 how how much they mean to us. I, I guess I think that's what it's about, isn't it? Mm. So we've we've talked about, I think, quite a few and different, but yet overlapping, I think, characteristics of what can be boring in conversation. Um, How we might overcome that is actually maybe by being a bit more caring or a bit more um, curious about the other and a bit more attentive also to our listeners. But part of... Yes. Can I I come in there? Yes, you can. Um, You've just triggered another thought, which is when I work with because obviously I'm a clinician when I work with people with social anxiety one of the things that that people with social anxiety do is they're very focused on themselves and their own performance and it was when you said about a curiosity that if we are curious about other people instead of about ourselves we can come across as more interesting and less and that helps us as well because we're less anxious so socially anxious people worry about boring people they about boring other people mm-hmm. and they worry about how they come across and that can be a self-fulfilling because they're so focused on themselves that that can come across as boring, a, a bit of a vicious circle. So it was just your your comment about curiosity. I like that, you know, being curious and interested in other people makes you less egocentric, even if it's for very um, um, benign reasons. You know, you might be egocentric because of social anxiety, not because you're a selfish person. <laughs> Yeah, but I can see actually as you're speaking how that would play out, like how that if you're more curious and less and, and less anxious in that moment, you might be less prone to ramble. You might be less prone to repeat, less prone to bring up unnecessary details um, mm. and all of those things. So, yeah, taking that focus away from yourself a bit can actually help bring in your your conversation partner. Exactly. Uh, 100% and I think the key really is just monitoring the other person rather than yourself Mm. because there's so many rules you know you've just had a few of them so many rules and it can feel overwhelming but if you're very socially anxious all you're monitoring is yourself you can't tell whether whether the other person wants to speak or whether they're bored because you're so focused on yourself so I think the key to overcoming social anxiety is to focus outwards Mm -hmm. monitor the other person so that you can res- re- respond to their facial expressions, their gestures, yeah. their indications of when they want to speak and things like that. So like listening better, but like in a really holistic way, like you're saying, not just with the ears, but just 
like listening to everything that your conversation partner is sort of bringing to that conversation. Yeah. Now, a lot of people with social anxiety will hear that and go, oh, yeah, but I do monitor the other person. But they're monitoring the other person for signs about themselves. They're bringing it back to themselves again. They're monitoring the other person to see if they like me. Am I boring them? And it's all about themselves. What I'm saying and what I think you're saying as well is focus more on the other person. Are they saying things that are interesting? Could I ask them questions about them, their lives? Have I? And this is another thing that people said was boring, by the way, where the other person reveals something really fascinating and you don't respond because you're so busy focusing on your own reactions or your own self. You know, they tell you, oh, I've just got a great new job and you, you just don't really react. Yeah, OK, that's a boring conversational partner. Yeah. Not um, asking questions is like just not showing interest and feeling but, like anything you say is just going to fall flat. But the reason they might do that is because they're so anxious about their responses. They're not really listening to you. They're not really, you know, having that level of curiosity in, in you. Yeah. 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 <coughs> I would like to kind of tie a lot of these um, different threads together here, uh, I guess, with with a question that goes back to the idea that where we began, that sometimes certain tasks bore us and sometimes they don't. Is that possible also in conversation that sometimes certain conversational manners may bore us um, and then other times they won't? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, very astute point that because there are times, you know, our moods change all the time. Um, there, I remember somebody telling me about um, a friend that they'd underappreciated so they had this friend and they thought they're very quiet and didn't really contribute much to the conversation, you know, boring. And they didn't really rate them. And what this person kept asking them, do you want to meet for coffee? And they, they, they just thought, well, I've got more interesting people. They never bothered. And then they met them and they found this person was an amazing listener. Hmm. And they loved that. They suddenly discovered that this person really listened to them, asked them questions, showed an interest. And they discovered a new respect for or appreciation for this person. but they may not be the right person when they want to have a laugh. They may be, you know, so it's different friends for different situations, different conversations for different situations. Yeah, I guess and knowing maybe who you need to reach out to uh, at different times in your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sandy Man, um, it's been a fascinating and quick trip, I think, through such a different and varied landscape of um, boredom and uh, boring conversation. So I thank you. Well, I have to say, uh, obviously, this is my specialist interest. And I talk to radio and give interviews constantly on boredom and lectures. And I love it when I'm asked questions that make me think and that I don't just give the standard answers. And you've asked me lots of really thoughtful questions. So um, not boring at all for me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to hear that. For this episode of Flow, we have original music by Glenn Etier, performed by Caitlin May Wong and Jonathan Zitouni, and edited by Rebecca Akone. I'd like to send a special thanks, as always, to Bruce Norton. And to all you listeners, thanks again for listening, and be sure to follow us to stay in the flow.